This is Talking Devils, your favourite Manchester United podcast, brought to you in association with Classic Football Shirts, who are currently selling classic and clearance lines with products from £5 upwards, so it's something for everyone there, and they've got shops in Manchester and London, you can order it online, and listeners to this show can get a discount with TOTD10, use that at checkout. I'm Wayne Barton, joined as always by Manchester United hero Paul Parker. How are you doing, Paul? I'm not bad at all, Wayne. Feeling not too bad over the, over my long weekend of football and starting again this evening and tomorrow night as well. Where in the world have you been this week? Well, it's still around the London area. Don't get too far away from there because I just don't like the driving anymore. But I was at Spurs yesterday, um, full Aston Villa tonight, and then back at Spurs for their Europa League game on Tuesday. Brilliant. I had a date last night with my wife. Can you believe it? Um, we went to socially distanced, very responsible, and we kept checking right until the last minute that we could do it. Um, the Odeon near us, um, Odeon, maybe View Cinema, um, they had the um, classic films on, and they had Rocky Four on the cinema. Oh, I indulged in that one. We got there, right? So I checking at the last minute to see that it was all right to st- still go and go ahead, and we went um, and watched it. And yeah, watching that film and the soundtrack booming out <laughs> is something like I was only four when the film came out, so to, to go back and watch it on the big screen is um, well, it was fun. Uh, yeah, everything was going all right there until you actually mentioned you was only four when that film came out, and then all of a sudden I got the ump. So, <laughs> so anyway, let's move on now, Wayne, talk about football. <laughs> yeah, 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 actually, yeah. And you know what? It's one of those things that someone. Um, I forgot who it was who tweeted it, so I'm sorry. Um, in a, oh, it was Stan, Stan Chow, um, mm. great artist, uh, Man United fan. He said something like, um, it was five minutes from the end, he said, we're five minutes away from United ruining or making my weekend. It turns out we're about 15 minutes away from that because of all the time <laughs> that was added on. But um, it was incredible game. I don't know where to begin, really, because it's one of the most eventful games in living memory. Um, and I don't think that's an overstatement. Um we can't sit here and say that's the best United performance, but we can no. at least talk about United win. Um, it had everything. It had um, some good, some bad, some controversy as well. Three penalty decisions. Um, and you can forget about Fergie time because now we've got Ollie time, which is goals scored so late there after the final whistle. Um, so let's start with the positives, um, Paul. Um, yeah, well, there are a few. Solskjaer talks about the positive response of his team to going behind, and I definitely agree with that, um, although that was limited somewhat. And the, obviously the response to the late equaliser as well, which was good. Um, on the balance of play, but, uh, Brighton definitely could feel hard done by, uh, without doubt, but United re- did respond well to going behind the first time. The start to the second half was positive. The goal from Marcus Rashford was simply outstanding. Bruno Fernandes showing good composure for the penalty. Um, I guess the major positive you pick all that apart, apart from the three points, Paul, is the goal from Rashford. Yeah, I suppose so because Rashford's been one of those people who's been questioned over the last few last few weeks. Um, um, was questioned during when the lockdown league was going on because the performances wasn't that good. Um, and then obviously he people were asking whether or not people weren't sure what kind of Marcus Rashford was going to start the season. So he needed that goal and. And you'd, everyone's hoping that he can, you know, that he can bounce on from there. Um, you look at him as an individual, and yes, you hope that happens because you know what a difference he makes. But I think if you look at the whole thing collectively, the team, there is, <laughs> to state the obvious, massive issues. Massive, and everyone has got an opinion. Everyone's out there saying what's going on, and all of a sudden, everyone's talking about who's buying who, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. The most important thing is that everyone saw massive weaknesses in Manchester United. To When you look at how Brighton have improved from last season, and the easiest, the easiest way to actually to put that, put that out there is United playing them in the lockdown league to playing them now. We know which club has made a step forwards, without a doubt. In the way they play, everything about them is better than Manchester United. Even the way they press the ball, the way they... The way the ball is delivered from the back, it's delivered with a quick tempo. There's actually a purpose in what they're trying to do. And I didn't, you know, I'd like to say, were United overplaying? No, they were just, they're just not good at um, playing from the back. There's no energy playing from the back, no, no purpose. There's nothing progressive from the back. Brighton 
showed that what the way they've moved forward. You look at their midfield, their midfield was better, which is our strongest area, and that's the bit I think he needs to work out, Oli. But defensively, having to defend, Brighton exploited every single weakness of that Manchester United back four. They moved them around, they, mm. they, they cut the line, they, they showed up the, the lack of pace in the centre of that defence as well. And it's a, it's, a, it's a whole problem. It's a whole problem and I really don't know how he's going to deal with it because every single player for me in that back line has got issues. You know, I, I saw the QE2 turn three or four times and Christ, it was slow. And, and the, the way, I mean, everything I look there is that there's no pace. There is no one in that back line who is quick. The quickest player, the fastest player, I should say, because there's a difference between quick and fast, is Wan Pasaka, and he's fast. But his first five yards, his first five yards or so, are not are not the quickest. So Wan, so Wan Pasaka is is the fastest one in that back line. I think Oli has to look at that back four and say to himself. This whole thing needs a rejig. It needs a rejig, or it needs staying after training and getting them to learn to work together. If you lack pace, it means you need to play with your head. It's because you know that's what they need to do because they're going to struggle in every game. If Brighton can shift them about, shift them about like Molpe did and which Connolly did as well throughout that game, they've got they've got serious problems when they play against allegedly better teams. Yes, I, I agree with that. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one to know because that, you know where I'm going to go with this. You know I'm going to say, oh, well, the, in, in Wambasaka and Maguire, um, you've got two players to sort of build around, but that's mostly due to the fact that they're new signings and you trust the manager um, and, and the fact that I think Wambasaka was our most... Um, well, certainly with the new signings, the most promising last season, um, Fernandez aside, of course. But you're right. They, Brighton. What concerned me was that they targeted them individually, and they knew what to do on every single player individually. I mean, there's no point going on about Lindelof. We said last week that, but they they had Wan-Bissaka on toast a little bit. They exploited him. They knew how to exploit him away from Lindelof and and isolate him a little bit. Um, show obviously his his faults are, are there for for people to see, um, but also Maguire, like you said, there's one incident in the first half, and it's quite early on, where they pulled him out of position where he they knew he had to turn, and that that for me is you know when you said that about isolating players and and singling them out, I, yeah, I definitely remember that happening, and it was a concern, um, but. Collectively, Paul, I know it's, we'll talk about the um, equaliser and everything at the end, but I thought collectively, although they they weren't great, don't get me wrong, I, I didn't think they were as bad as they were against Palace. I don't um, know, am, am I being too generous with that? I, I, personally, I think you are. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I, think, I, think, I really do think you are, because he's up against a team that's playing like... The, the style of play that everyone is trying to play and they've grabbed hold of it very quick under Graham Potter and players got shifted by sheer movement rather than people running running around for the sake of it and they got pulled all over the place so it was it was worse than what it was against Palace Palace was just sheer pace that Dunham and, yeah. but Brighton was just about footballing Footballing know-how and just about how to how to get through the lines and get and get to the weak points of that team was when you're talking about was Harry Maguire getting Harry Maguire in positions where he had to turn and run. I saw him one time. He must have been 20 yards outside the box and he's had to turn and run back. Blimey! I tell you what, I keep telling people when people about kids today talking about. I say, if you're Charles an athlete. First, he's got a great chance of going further rather than being technically good. Mm-hmm. For the simple reason is that athletes, if they're the right stature, play, managers will look at them and say, we can, we can make him into a footballer. I look at Harry Maguire and I, and I say to myself, yes, he's got the height. He hasn't, he's, when you talk about a stature, he's got something, but he's not athletic in the way he looks. And he's certainly not athletic in the way he runs because it was a, a run and it looked like a comedy run. Mm. <clears throat> he was really having to work hard to get going. Absolutely, he looked absolutely awful. I, I had to double check who it was running back 
because I wasn't sure. And, and it's, too, it's, too, it's going to happen too many times, especially the way this league is at the moment. The league at the moment is absolutely incredible. The league is upside down. Yeah. You know, I, I do, I'm in the predictions thing. Every week I do it. And it's, well, it's like my good mate's um, pub somewhere and there's about 45 fellas in it. 45 and generally the people who win it normally win it with anything from 11 to 17 points they normally win it who win it and get the money each week this week the winner got two points <laughs> the one second got one the next the third and fourth was done with minus one and minus two i was i was i was like near the in the bottom bottom third i had minus seven alan Brazil was in it had minus 11 <laughs> So that tells you what this league's about. West Ham beat Wolves last night, 4-0 at home and deserved to win. Everyone would have had Wolves as they'd done the last two, two seasons, go there and batter them. I've been at both games working. Wolves battered them there. Mm. Yeah. And I saw that one and I was just sitting in the front room here, didn't really want to watch it, I had my iPad in front of me, looking at something else with the earbud in, and I just kept looking and I couldn't believe it, end up taking it out. It's the it's the second game I've watched ninety minutes off. The first game I watched ninety minutes off properly was the United game against Brighton. <clears throat> I didn't really want to watch it, to be honest, but I thought I'd better do. Because I was just here on a Saturday morning before I, before I went went out football, and then I sat and watched the West Ham one because it hasn't interested me at all. This football, I'm I'm losing the appeal to watch football on TV. I only, only got some appeal if I'm working in the studio or I'm at a game. So mm. football at the moment, the life has been sucked out of it for me because now I'm appreciating and respecting fans even more because they need to be in the ground. Yeah. It's, take, it's taking my joy out of watching. So every game is very similar. So I think now players are struggling. I looked at Wolves last night, and Wolves said it all to me. Everyone's kind of, everyone likes Wolves, what they've gone and done, the way they play, they like the manager, everything. But they've, I think mentally, I think the players have, have had enough of it. The players want the adulation, that go, everything that goes with it. Yeah. The players are struggling, and people, some people are, oh, look at the money they earn. They're still human. They they still want people around them. They, they st- Majority of them still want that little bit of saying, oh, well played, well done. Or Some of them need to be barracked just to wake them up, to get them going, to remind them. Because a few of them are on their heels sometimes because they haven't got... You know, maybe five, six thousand people behind the goal, shouting them to step forward, go and go and close them down. You know, it's 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 affecting players now, and I just wonder how many United players now are struggling to get themselves up, and in a way, sometimes forget who they're playing for because United away from home at Brighton, every every ticket would have gone and more. And there would have been that usual roar they would have heard from the United away travel. And I think most teams are getting that now, Wayne. It's coming very difficult now to kind of gauge a game. Anything's good, because you don't know. Because now we're having to try and assess the individual rather than assess the team, which is near on impossible, isn't it? People People are earning thousands and thousands a month as psychologists to do that, how are we going to do that as, as, as someone watching a game of football? Who's going to win? It's hard enough trying to do that, let alone question the state of players' minds because they're struggling now with what's happening around them, which is, virtu- which is nothing. That's the thing. Nothing's happening around them. I'm at games, and all you can do is hear the benches. And sometimes players don't need to hear the manager every two minutes. Managers are getting up now more often than not Except for Ollie, because he's watching, he's watching saying on Netflix, <laughs> isn't he? Really, but they're they're getting up more often than they normally do because I think they feel they need to do something because generally they normally know that the fans are there doing it for them that little bit, and all they've got to do is just go and stand now. And, and some players don't want to hear them all the time. I certainly didn't want to hear the boss all the time shouting and screaming because all of a sudden, if he mentions your name, you've got nowhere to hide. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't you can't make out you can't hear him. Sorry, boss, I can't hear you. Yeah, um, let, let's just um, a couple of words on the defence before we talk about the conclusion to the game and yeah. how dramatic it was. So obviously, defensively, we have been critical. Um, as we have been last week as well. Our defenders, though, they do seem to pick their moments as well. I mean, the thing I wrote in the write-up for the website was, as ever with this United team, the more defenders there are on the pitch, the more opportunity there is 
for one of them to make an error rather than thinking oh they're going to add safety in numbers I mean last week as well I mean that's we'll talk about the the equaliser but last week Luke Shaw had a, a game to forget um, Saturday it was Wambasaka's turn um, it was probably his worst well it was his worst performance for the club now like I said I didn't think in terms of how bad they can be was as bad as we've seen before but in the last 10 minutes when you needed composure from them you knew that they weren't going to hold out you knew that they were going to switch off when you needed them to, to be switched on the entire time and they switched off there um, and for the equaliser people complained about the selection um, Lindelof in and not Eric Bai. It's an interesting one for me, Paul. I'd love to get your opinion on this one because there's a week or so left in the transfer window. You would have thought the centre-back areas had become an emergency if mm. it wasn't before. Perhaps if he had played Eric Bai, Woodward might have looked at it and think, well, you don't need a new defender. You're going to give Eric a chance again. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a catch-22 for all of that, isn't it? Oh, do, it you, is. do, you stick with, do you stick with Lindelof and say, I'm, I'm showing him faith? Or do you stick with, or do you put Bai in and say, I'm going to give him his chance now? Because if you do that, you're, you're basically saying, I don't need a new defender. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you are there. And that's why there's one person, the manager, and the rest of us are just people who just have an opinion. That's what we are. Mm. There's a lot of people out there who, when they have their opinion, they're virtually saying to people, my opinion's right. I'm not interested in anybody else's. Yeah. So it's not So it's not an opinion anymore. That's, that's what it's become now. And it's only him who can make a decision. He's got to think, if I leave that Lindelof now, he would have seen how much stick he's getting from everybody. If he hasn't seen it, everyone's going to tell him. Mm. Telling him what's going on, family, friends are going to be telling him. To leave him out and then for Bailly to suddenly go and get another injury after two, three games and he's got to turn to him again yeah. and ask him, do, it's a difficult one. How does he go about it? And, and that's the thing, that is the most difficult thing is how is he going to deal with that to manage that situation? Everything is in front of him to say, do it, do it, and I'm there. But then when he's not playing by, I think to myself, I understand why, because he has to look at the long game, not the bigger picture, the long game, is that he might need him again, and there's, there's a way to do it, and the way to do it might not work, but it might be... It might just work. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure Ollie has got an idea how he's going to do it. And yes, can you trust Bailly when he comes in that he's not going to go and do something silly, erratic, or he's going to go and jump at someone and then go down holding his head? I've never known a centre-half. go. He's gone down more since he's been at that club than what Steve Bruce ever did in his whole career at Manchester United. Well, absolutely. Paul, and another thing on that is like, yeah, we can pick on Wan-Bissaka for not picking up at Solly March at the back post but it still concerns me that that cross comes across the box and you've got three centre-offs and none of them are they have the imposing power or the commanding presence to get rid of it I know yeah, you might say that it was a good cross and they evaded three of them but three centre-offs they're there to cut that trouble out aren't they? They are They are supposed to the problem is though if you if you put more, if you put more than one chef in the kitchen, then all of a sudden decision making goes out the window. Then it's yeah. always that other chef's fault. Yeah. No, it's his fault. No, it's my fault. So Ollie, by actually bringing on an extra defender, an extra central defender, by putting three in there, he made it he made it more difficult in the kitchen. Yeah. Because all of a sudden decision making goes out, and because Manchester United haven't got a commanding figure who's going to take control. That was it. That was the problem. Oh, we got someone else. Just come in and stay there. Ollie called. Ollie was better off putting someone into midfield to try and stop them getting on the ball and being comfortable, or getting hold of the ball and making the ball retention of Manchester United better, yeah. or, or even maybe putting a forward-thinking player on and just to turn Brighton around. Every time we got the ball, someone to run in behind to stretch the game out. Even if they run offside. The moment, if they keep going and going and chase down something and they're blatantly offside, just to still do it until the linesman has to put his flag up, the referee blows the whistle, that's time gone. But you don't. You bring someone in, you take someone out in the midfield, and what happens is, or you take off, I think it was Mason Greenwood, wasn't it? Yeah. So you take off an attacking player. That's one less up there. The other defenders go, wow, we can push up a little bit more because young Mason Greenwood's not here anymore. We can impose ourselves more, step in. We've got chances to deliver the ball even easier to our front people. That allows the opportunity more to get it into the box of calls and problems. Straight away, it's, it's, straight away, it's like putting... 
I fly over from where I live to take everyone out from where I live so then go within, instead of 20 minutes to get to the M25, put a flyover in, I can be there in five minutes. Great, I'll get onto it. The problem is that means the traffic's getting there quicker. It's congested. And that's what happened in that box. When it got congested, no commanding figure, your ball, my ball, no, it's yours, bang. There you, there you go. And, that, yeah. and, and that's what happened. And to be honest, the, sol- the Solly March scenario, I think I'm going to turn around and say... He, that was his fourth attempt at the far post. Yeah. I think it was his fourth or it, would, it was his third. One of the two. The problem was this time they allowed him ones with his left foot, his actual good left foot, and he never succeeded there. He was poor. So they just allowed him to have it, use his head yeah. in yeah. the end. So it was poor and you can blame people. But when the ball's in that situation, it happens that often, that often, there's only one person you can really blame. He'll always have something to, to speak to. But it's the fullback. Yeah, yeah. It's the fullback. Because yeah. he, he gets to him, then what he does, he tells one of the centre halves, you come back on that man. Instead of me coming across, especially how far away, <coughs> excuse me, how far away it is from the goal. It's not as if it was 20, 25 yards outside the box and there's enough room as it Wampasaka to recover, as he does do all the time. There isn't enough time in the box to recover for anything. Not a chance. You can't recover once you're in there. You'll be very, very lucky if you don't give away a penalty, if there's any chance of recovering. And there you are. So there was enough warning, enough warning shots to suggest, this is what they're doing. I'm going to go and stand on Solly March. Yeah. I, one thing I would say, hopefully, that's going to be uh, a learning curve for one Bissaka that wasn't too costly, because obviously we go down the other end and we score straight away. Um, one of those moments where... Um, you really do wish that there was a travelling support because they would have gone absolutely nuts for what happened in the last uh, sort of 90 seconds of that. Um, before we get to the last penalty decision, talk through the, the first two um, incidents, if you like. The first one I don't think either of us would argue with, Bruno Fernandes on Lamptey, um, clear, oh. clear foul. Yeah, it was it was ridiculous, really, and that one, <clears throat> to be honest, to him to be complain about it really shouldn't bother because he knows exactly how he would have been in that one and that was an out and out penalty that was you know it just it was sloppy what he'd done there Lamptey was all he could have done at best was maybe pull it across the goal across the six yard box and he's someone slightly going away you, you'll gamble and say go on see what's going to happen next but you don't put yourself in that position unless you can actually get your body and you get your contact with the ball as well when you put when you do anything like that he didn't do it it's a penalty. It's a penalty. Yeah, the, the second one on Pogba. Um, second one. I th- I thought that one was touch and go. <clears throat> I mean, I I hate the words when I listen to some commentators and every time oh there was contact, so it was a penalty. I go, I keep, I keep going to myself and I'm repetitive with this. It's football. <laughs> There's going to be contact. Yeah. There is going to be contact. There is no social distancing on a football pitch. and never has been, never will be. And people are going to... But, it, but the problem is, and it's down to the referees to really try and really ingrain this in our game, is that when they see that people are cheating, and I use that word, and I do use that word when I'm doing on the radio, cheating, is when they're trying to cheat the referee to gain an advantage, the referee should be able to see it and yell a card. And once they start doing it, then players will understand and relate and, and start to get it, that they're not going to get away with it. I've seen so many, I've seen so many players do it. They throw themselves, they look up the referee, the referee says, doesn't give anything, they get up and run back. Why doesn't the referee book them? So I'm looking there and I think to myself, was there enough contact for him to go down? Was there enough contact for him, which in a normal walk of life, he'd fall over? No, there wasn't. Mm. So if it's contacting, so is that what a game about? about? If it's about contact, the moment somebody's about to, the moment that ball's kicked at a corner, it's a penalty. Because mm. there's contact all over the place. There's shirt pulling. No one ever gives anything for shirt pulling because they're scared. Referees are scared to give anything for shirt pulling because now the repercussions of it all is that they'll call something and what's its name? The people in the studio will turn around and say, no, they don't want egg on their face. So they're scared. They're scared. It's like being a doctor, really. Doctors, some doctors are scared to make a decision because they're worried about the repercussion. Other doctors are scared to come in and get having a second opinion and then make the decision against another doctor. And it's becoming like that with referees. They're scared to make decisions about things. They're waiting. This, the ref, you see them all yesterday, the Tottenham game, 
with a penalty incident at the end. They're looking for offside. You think to yourself, we're talking about a handball here. So look for an offside. I see it. Bang. No offside. Right, it's a handball then. Oh, no. So they send the referee now to the telly. They're telling the referee to go to the telly. Not the referee deciding he wants to go. They're going, oh, we can't put our name to that. We leave it all to you. Instead of the referee being man enough and go, it's my decision. I've called it. Let me go and have a look. Hmm. And that's the problem we got into. Is, so in theory, VAR works for games that stop. So it works for cricket and it works for rugby. Yeah. And, that's, and they're, they're the games with phases of play. As simple as that. Phases of play, which is stopped and started by a whistle, that works. It works. In cricket, obviously, cricket hasn't got a whistle, but still, it works. So I'm, I'm just thinking the whole thing with Pogba one, was it 100%? Not in a million years was it 100%. The last one, um, <clears throat> this was always going to happen at some point, wasn't it? The, the whistle going and then the referee has to check after the final whistle. <laughs> Um, that each United adds to sort of the drama, I guess, and the narrative. Um, the, everyone's arguing about this sort of like, you know, can, can it be an handball from that distance? And then they say, no, oh, well, blame the rule, don't blame VAR, and which I understand that. And sometimes I look at that and think, oh, it's a little bit harsh. If that was against my team, I'd think it was a little bit harsh. But then you put in the context of these are the rules now this is the way that it goes and he can't have any complaints with it it adds to the pantomime effects that this this is the guy who scored the earlier penalty and is um he did the celebration with the oh you're crying about it and everything so he's he's got this um added sort of layer to his storyline in the game as well um but obviously dispatched with um, a plum by fernandez no problem there um he didn't even do the skip which was nice to see, just put it away. Um, but Paul, for you, uh, are, are you, first of all, these are two threads to this. Was it a penalty? And secondly, are you happy with the the idea that a whistle can be blown and the referee can check the decision to, to go back and still allow the kick to be taken? I think we have to say it's a rarity that happen, happens in football. The only one I can remember any, anything like that, even though it was Clive Thomas back when... Um, Brazil v Sweden I'm trying to think what World Cup it was was it 80 was it 78 World Cup I think it was Brazil v Sweden I think I think there was Brazil scored a goal but Clive Thomas had blown a referee allegedly blown had blown a referee had blown the whistle before the ball was um, scored when Brazil scored right at the end I think it was Zico who scored so very rare rare that it yeah, happened 78 that yeah 78 yeah so um so I, I, I look at so I think myself, right, okay, that's something different. That, that ain't going to happen too often, Wayne, that. You're not going to see that again for a long time, I don't think. But saying that, the way this handball rule is, we don't know. Do I think it was a handball? I wonder why somebody would jump with that, their arm that high. Yeah. That's the thing I will say. That's the bit I don't get. If his arm was below shoulder, shoulder height, I would argue all day long. Mm. But because his arm was up that high... And he was jumping blind as well. He's jumping for the sake of it, and he wasn't on as such at the ball. I have to say that there was a lot of doubt there about whether whether or not you know he didn't he wasn't aware of what he was doing. Mm. So for him, it's foolhardy what he's gone and done, and he's going to be regretting what he's done. I didn't hear the manager really come out and say much about it. He never really contested that way. He was just more, and as good as he, he talked about their performance and they deserve more from it, everything was 100% right. He's not a shout and a screamer about things. So I think he, he could have had something to say, but you could just see by the Brighton players after the way they were reacting, they weren't berating the referee. They weren't shouting and screaming. Graham Potter weren't out there. I think in a way, loosely, I think they accepted it that Mulpai made a mistake, made a massive mistake you know, I think the ruling is hard. I think it's going to come to the point is that football shorts are going to have to have pockets in them. So every time you're defending in your box, that you have to put your ha- you put your hands in your pocket and you know you're jumping safely. Mm. You look like you look like something from a comedy show, but it stops you giving away penalties. Can I just interrupt on that, Paul? Because mm. the, the it's a common phrase at the moment, Paul, where or something that we've talked about before at least is. 
when the rules are changed, it's like, oh, you'll get a penalty every week for that. And it doesn't, oh, oh, you'll get a penalty every game. You'll see something every game. You know, when they were changing the rules about wrestling last season, wrestling in the box and this new handball rule. But at the moment, it does look like you're going to get penalties in every single game, doesn't it? Yeah, without that. Could you, could you imagine, I mean, what this would have been like with this rule with fans in the stadium? It would have been carnage. Mm. It would have been carnage if fans had been there. There'd been ones walking out of the gang going like everything's going for them. You've got the ones who are just going to be going absolutely mad. And is it <laughs> so much contention there would have been with everything that's going on? So it's a, it's a poor decision. I think, you know, what Roy Hodgson said in the manner in which he said it, said it all really for people. It's the only league that's doing it in English football. So you go and play in the championship, it's a completely different, it's the real rule. Mm. And there's only, there should only be two forms of handball, as virtually what Roy said. De, you know, deliberate or not deliberate. Hmm. It's as simple as that. As long as your arms are not above your shoulders, I don't think you've really got an argument. There's maybe a few points when your arms, your arms has gone above your shoulders, when, you know, maybe when you're sliding on the floor or something. That's, a, that's about as far as you can go with it, where you can argue, got a case to argue. But when you jump for a ball and your arm, your arm is up above your, your, your hand, I should say, is above your shoulder, unless you can prove that you've you got a green jersey on your goalkeeper, you're not really in theory allowed to win the argument. So that's to make it easy. It's not, it's not going out there and just you know, trying to discover the will or anything. It's just common sense, really, for everybody. And everyone knows how it stands. It makes the job easier for referees as well. It makes... Did Mal Pye mean to handball that ball? No, he didn't. Because the ball was actually gone. Did he mean... To, no, he didn't. When we see the one that Dyer's done, and Dyer had a warning yesterday, he done it earlier, and I spotted that one out about a minute, two minutes early. Is that the same? Andy Carroll has headed it against him, but for some unknown reason, Dyer, when he jumps, he turns his back. And my commentator said, no, his back's turned. I turned around and said to him, doesn't make any difference. Andy Carroll's header was going in towards the goal, into an area where if it's not going to hit the target, other people could be in contention to get the second ball. Two minutes later, Eric Dyer's done exactly the same again. And bang, he's waved his arm in the air this time. He's, he's thrown, he's moved it. And he's got, he's not, he can't even see the ball. He's got his back to Andy Carroll and the ball. And he's moved his arm towards the ball. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned... That's a penalty, because if, that way we can all do that and just gamble. Otherwise, everyone be as the ball's gone that way, everyone be turning round in the air and doing that if they're not going to win the ball. Mm. So you have to make a point of saying, well, yeah, his arms are above his shoulder. He's moved his arm. It's not as if his arm hasn't moved. He's moved his arm. It's a penalty. Plus, it's Eric Dyer. You're always going to get a chance when he's playing centre half. Simple as that, really. I don't know how old of is still a, he's signed that new contract. He mostly cannot believe what's going on. But still, it, I think they really do need to sort that out now. Not wait till the end of decision, end of decision, end of the season. Do it now for the sake of football because. Everybody's going to wait. The next, the following weekend's coming out. Next bit of football, we're waiting for the next bit. Are they going to allow this to escalate into a farce? Yeah. That's the thing. I'm not hearing it anywhere else. I mean, no one's outside talking about what's happening in other leagues or anything. But in this country, we're quite good at only talking about other pe other countries when it suits ourselves. But when we really need to find out about it, about something, we need to know. Is this happening in the Italian league or the Spanish league? You know, is it happening there? This this situation, are they, are they having the same problem? Because I'm not I'm not seeing it or hearing about it. No, um, and Ben Foster tweeted, um, former United keeper, of course. He said, "I'm glad to be in the Championship, so we don't have any of this." Yeah. Um, and he, he can have sympathy for that, definitely. Um, Brighton again in the League Cup this week, Paul. Um, are you going to expect a rotated side? I mean, I'm not. Obviously, it's a League Cup. You want to win, um, but at the, at the moment, obviously, it's a big thing for us to get fitness. He rotated the side against Luton. You expect that he'll probably do the same against Brighton in the in yeah. The well, League Cup. yeah. Well, I um, I saw the Brighton when they played Portsmouth in the League Cup in the previous round, and they were absolutely excellent. 
incredible. He made changes, but those players come out and those players played like players who wanted to be playing against Manchester United in the next game. Incredible performance. They beat them, I think, 4-0. Could have been 6 or 7. That's how you go and beat sides in lesser divisions. Portsmouth had nothing. Portsmouth couldn't have done any more than what they'd done. They tried to play football. They didn't try to hoof it. They didn't try to kick them. Portsmouth done everything, but they couldn't. Brighton were too good. If, and I'm, as far as I'm concerned... If he makes six changes, which is every chance he could make six changes, they're not going to win the game. They're not going to win. They're not. They're not going to win the game. There's too much energy in that team, in that Brighton, the players that played in that game. It's not going to happen. So he he has to think how he's going to go about it. If he's talking about his players, they need games. He's got to give them games to sharpen them up, to get them to get them passing the ball quicker. And there's no better team to do it against than Brighton. Go against them again and try and go and do that. Because I tell you what, it's not going to be right again if he goes and makes too many changes and he brings in the wrong players who haven't played enough football and they're pondering. Because Brighton will not be pondering. Yeah. Um, One team definitely won't be is going to be Spurs, who are the opponents next week, Paul. Um, Wow, I mean, Jose Mourinho coming back to Old Trafford again. Um, obviously, he did last year with um, Spurs as well. We played them um, a couple of times, but it's all going a little bit. I'm not going to say wrong. It's very controversial for him at the moment, as, as you would expect at Spurs. Um, very divisive. We've seen a lot of things that we've seen from him at United, but in terms of the game. It feels like, and I say this with some apprehension, but you look at the dissension over there and how difficult things are and how the decisions have gone against them this season, the way that they're feeling a little bit aggrieved. Perhaps it does feel a bit like a good time to play them. I mean, in the past, I would have thought, oh, you do that, you see a Jose Mourinho team start like that, and then you know that in the next game they're going to be um, resolute, they're just going to shut down and try and get a point, and maybe they'll try and do that. But the difference with modern Jose Mourinho as opposed to previous Jose Mourinho is that his teams don't generally hold out in the same way that they used to. So maybe it is a good time to play them, do you think? Yeah, without, without a doubt. There's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot not right. <clears throat> even even the amount of people in the stadiums when I go to Spurs, you can just feel it just around, everyone around, even people off the field, even their... Even their People who work in their press office, you see them around. They're not the same people who are. You go there and who are sore before, and you listen to people talk about things, and they're just about getting over the line. In Europe, they're just getting by. I mean, they dominate in that first half. I was, you know, I turned around and said at halftime, if Spurs don't win this game three or four nil, I said it would be quite poor, really, because they deserve to, because they've absolutely. I mean, it, I'm going to use the word battered. You know, quite a common word, but that's what it was. It was embarrassing. Newcastle were absolutely embarrassing playing 3 5, playing 3 5 2. You know, they might as well just played, you know, 8 1 1. It was just absolutely awful, Newcastle, no, showing no desire again. Every time I see Newcastle, no desire. And they go in at half time 1 0, and all of a sudden they come out second half. There's no sun there. I'm kind of going, oh, that's happening. I said, so the next thing, I'm, I come out on the radio and say, now this is a problem for Spurs. My co-commentator said, why is that? I said, Sun's their one who gives them energy. He's the one who's unselfish with his runs and runs everywhere and creates so much space. He makes everyone look good. And what happened? For 45 minutes, Spurs were just happy to be 1-0 up. Harry Kane seemed to... Harry Kane is, is involved, but not really involved as such. If he scores a goal, everything's great. If he doesn't score a goal, you do wonder, you say to yourself, you know, what has he done? But, you know, there's supposed to be this new Harry Kane now who's dropping off and he's assisting, he's making goals. And, you know, he made like all the Suns goal the other day. The problem is Harry Kane is selfish and he wants to score goals, not make goals for people. You don't get trophies for making goals. He wants to score goals. Mm. So all of a sudden, he, he wasn't the same player. It was, it was, there was definitely more about him. Spurs had nothing really without him. So they had a lot of the ball, but they weren't doing anything. And he just knew that at the end of the day, Newcastle's first time, if they hit the target once, you think if they could do, they might get something out of it. Mm. The only time they hit the target was with the penalty. The only time they had anything on target was the penalty. Yeah. It was only their second shot at goal. 
Callum Wilson had them both. It was awful. But you look at them and, and you see afterwards, you see Jose Mourinho, when, when in the end after the referee, after they make a pig for your making decision, he runs up the tunnel. And I'm kind of there on radio going, blimmin' hell, I'd love my manager to run up the tunnel. That made me feel really good and really believe in him the next time he got a game when he, when he comes out and uses those words, we're, we're all in this together. Oh, thank you, boss. You just go off to the dressing room when it suits you. And then he sends out all his henchmen to berate the referee. One of them gets a red card. You think to yourself, what's going on here? This is, this is, this is you know, transmitting into something quicker than what it did at Manchester United. Now, I'm trying to think myself, and I think when I played, there's no way in a million years that the boss would have walked up the tunnel like that and <clears throat> left everyone out there. There's no way, if Brian Kidd had come across with a referee, Brian Kidd would have been dragging us away as players or he'd have been grabbing hold of the boss. Yeah. He would not have berated a referee. Not in a million years. That wasn't his job, his thing to do it. No way was that his job. And, that's, and that would have been there. <coughs> that would have definitely, in his remit, he wouldn't have done that. It was just out of thing. He's got a boss, and that's his boss. If the boss wants to do that, he can do what he, he wants. But when I saw that, I think myself, yep, Tottenham, this is like deja vu, Manchester United, just happening a little bit quicker than what it did at Manchester United at this moment in time. So to answer you to question is, yes, it's a good time because he's going to play in his mind. He's talking all the talk. He's already, he's already disrespected Tottenham and upset Tottenham fans already when he talks about himself and about coming to a club that hasn't, doesn't win trophies. He's already killed Tottenham fans with that. That's gone against him. So that hasn't helped his cause because they were unsure before. So there's a lot of things. He's, he's, um, he's playing Manchester United. He's going to desperately want to come to Old Trafford and get something. But in that time, he might be worried about the next game. I mean, they've got Chelsea on Tuesday. They've got a European game on, on Thursday. So Chelsea game is going to want to go for that regardless. He ain't going to want to lose it. I'm lose to Frank or anything. His ego won't let him. Is going to try its best not to let him um, to win. Um, not um, lose that game. Yeah. But Manchester United, it's it's one he's going to want because he he still thinks he's owed something for some reason. And I don't know where that come from that Manchester United owe Jose Mourinho anything. And when you say he'll want something from the game, like when he wants something from a game, it's like literally he's not bothered necessarily about winning. He's about stopping the other team from winning. Um, oh, that, well, that's, that's the way he plays, Wayne. That yeah. is exactly what, that, in a way, that's what they kind of done against Newcastle, who are poor. But Newcastle would go and win their next game 4 0. That's how bad, I mean, it was, it's just absolutely madness. Um, you see Newcastle come to, they virtually come down to West Ham and they scored, they scored their only two shots of the game at West Ham. Yeah. And then they go and get hammered, hammered by Brighton at home and then go and deliver that and they get a point. So in theory, they've taken four points out of their first three game, Newcastle. They'll be happy to do that all season and yeah, stay up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's how, that's how mad it is. And if I'm you know, lucky enough, if you're a Newcastle fan at the moment, you're mostly glad that you didn't spend and give up your Sunday, give up your Saturday and your Sunday morning to travel to watch that. You'll celebrate the, the point. But to travel back those five, six hours back to Newcastle, you began. we're going nowhere as a club. Because at the end of the day, when you pay money for entertainment, because football entertain, is an entertain, in the entertainment yeah. business, yeah. you'd be going to the box office and demanding your money back. Because Newcastle do not entertain. And I saw Rafael Benitez, Benitez done a job there. And it was okay what he was doing. He was getting results and they loved him. Brucey has done better in a certain way what he's achieved with the points and things like that. The problem is, is that, as strange as it seems, Raffle, Newcastle's Rafa Benitez's Newcastle played better football. Yeah. You know, it's so clinical what Steve has gone and done. And he's virtually saying to the players, you're not good enough, you can't do that. You know, with Matt Ritchie playing left back. I think it might be needs must for them, and obviously it worked for them yesterday. Um, even Ooh, if it works by luck, but yeah, Mass by the skin of the teeth. Massive, massive luck. But um, it, that is that sort of feeling that luck is against Spurs, and even if the decisions are right, the way that they've been affected by refereeing decisions adds to that sort of feeling. And like I said, in in the past, you would have thought a Jose Mourinho team who, who, who thought that people were against them, you'd be concerned about them, but. I actually think it works in United's advantage because um, you kind of want a dodgy decision, don't you? Do you know what I mean? To, to see the implosion, really, to see because you know that it'll have an impact on the team. Um, not so much that you want to win by a dodgy decision. I, I don't mean that. I just mean that 
if one happens, then it has a bigger effect than it normally would. Um, so yeah. it's going to be yeah. interesting anyway. It's always compelling. Um, one thing you can say about him is there's always a story when when he's around. Um, yeah. To end the the pod on something positive and something different, good conversation. Um, we ran the um, uh, over the the summer. I ran the top fifty players in Manchester United history on the website. I did a list last year and I've sort of revised it this year. A couple of players moved around um, because my opinions on it changed a little bit. I wanted to talk to you about it because I ran the top 10 yesterday. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the, the top three United players in history, in your opinion. Um, I'll be honest, like I said, my opinion changes quite often on this because you look at different factors. Do you really, I guess it shouldn't change, but um, I like to think I'm evolving at the same time and, and your opinions change uh, even if it's over something that's already happened um, but you can't help but change your opinions sometime when you look at it because football's such an emotive thing and you look at things in a different way like if you look at the trophies you look at the appearances and then you can look at the influence a player had and then you look at the individual talent a player had as well Um I'm going to tell you my top three, Paul, and see if you have a different top three. Um, my top three players who ever played for Manchester United. I had number three, Ryan Giggs, number two, Eric Cantona, and number one, George Best. Um, people can look at the rest of the top ten to see where the players like George, uh, like Bobby Charlton and Dennis Law and Roy Keane, everyone sort of ranked in there. But um, your top three, Paul, who, who would they be? Am I just going to name three players? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just because uh, there's, there's no there's no demographic or any, demographics or anything like that. Just no, to, easy, uh, easy enough for you, Paul. As easy as it can be to name the three in your mind, the three best players that ever played. Well, the easiest ones, easiest ones for me to throw up then would be. I'd always throw always put Brian Robson in there. Yeah, I'd always I'd always in, in theory throw up a, um, a George Best, and I would throw up a Roy Keane. Yeah. Yeah, but I know. But I think it needs to be set in a way because it should be real in theory for you, Wayne. It should be the players you've seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's without, without without a doubt. Because I mean, I I've seen so many clips of George Best, so many clips, and George Best playing as football is today. It'd be the be- It'd be one of the. It would be the best player in the world. The way he could run and dribble. No man can dribble on mud and somehow kick the ball on the floor. Yeah. And control it, and never runs away from him. You know what you saw of him, and I only saw clips. It's like someone said to me, "The best player you've ever seen in your life." The world. I could go Pele. I only seen Pele score goals. I've never saw him. See, I've seen him step over the ball, yeah, yeah. and allow score one of the greatest goals ever scored in a World Cup in the 1970s. Stepped yeah. over the ball, yeah. but the other side of it is that I've never seen Pele play I've, I've never seen him run with the ball do anything yeah. so all I know is a great goal scorer but if I if going by the players I played with definitely Roy and Brian Robson from Manchester would definitely be in now then if I was going to bring it down a little bit I'd have to mention I'd have to say Ryan Giggs yeah as a young player who's come through and he's done everything which everybody is still hoping that they can go and get another player who does a Ryan Giggs there's been a lot of talk about young players but no one has ever gone and hit the heights that Ryan ever done it's incredible isn't it Paul Mm. I always laugh at that because people now say oh you only say Ryan Giggs because he's longevity merchant and that he played 900 not games. And I think, well, the Ryan Giggs that I grew up with obviously wasn't a longevity merchant. He wasn't in there that he hadn't played 900 games in his in his first five or six years. Mm. For those five or six years, I mean, yeah, he burst onto the scene and he was incredible. And then he had that moment um, just after you left, really. I think, I think there was three years. I know Zidane emerged and Rivaldo was there as well. But I think when you watch Ryan Giggs in European competition on a consistent basis, excellent. He was as good as any player in the world, wasn't he? Yeah, Ryan didn't. Ryan didn't have bad games as such. Ryan had games when things didn't go right for him because Ryan would never go missing. Mm. You see players and you think, oh, he had a bad game. You go, oh, man, he didn't really touch the ball. And you ask yourself, why? Ryan would always go and try and find things. Ryan used to frustrate the boss incredibly because he'll try and beat people when maybe the boss thought he shouldn't. 
then Ryan would go and beat him. He'd go and try the same again and this time do it. He never went missing. Brian McClare was another one who was a bit like that. Brian McClare would always try things. Get the ump, the boss would get the ump. But Ryan, but he believed it was the right decision and what he was trying to do, so he would try and do it. <clears throat> but Ryan was just incredible. 900-odd games. Ryan, Ryan, in theory, given his injuries, could have been talking about... <clears throat> over a thousand, twelve. I'm going to say eleven hundred games. How many games he during my time there with his hamstring problems he had at the start, at the start of his career. He, I tell you what, he'd be close to eleven hundred games. Yeah. Without without show, as stupid as that might sound, that's it's a fact. And I think many many people who know that who are United fans would know that he was that he, he should have gone well over a thousand games without a doubt. If and I bring it down to that. And not only 1,100 games, but I mean, those 960 odd they did play were all at the top level, all, yeah, all challenging t- for trophies. Oh, exactly right. It was, there's, no, there's not many people who are going to be able to do that. And that's the difference. There's the big difference in playing 1,000 games. <clears throat> and, there's a, and, and the difference is, is that playing at your peak every game because everybody is trying to slap your bum. Mm. Everybody, that's the difference I found when you play for United. Everyone wants to beat you. As much as they turn around and people say, oh, but they felt they were going to lose. They, they might have felt like it. So that meant they had nothing to lose. So they gave everything. And, then, and what you find after you've gone, and, you've gone and won the game, they would come up to you, shake your hand, and they, was just, they felt like it was a pleasure to play against you. Never got that until I signed there. And, that, and that's the difference. So when you play with someone like Ryan, and I'm very glad that I joined Manchester United when I did, because I certainly wouldn't want to have to play against Ryan. Because when you, <laughs> nothing worse than me, I would, what? I'm 10 years older than Ryan. So when I joined United, Ryan was 17. And he's a 17 year old kid who could run quicker than me, who could actually turn on the sixpence and could go and, and spin me all I'd want to kick the hell out of him. Yeah, it would, it would drive me mad. That's what he had. But he had that look on his face as well. And you turn around and call him smug, but it wasn't. He was that. He had that arrogance about him that he knew how good he was. You just faced it every morning in training. Yeah, oh yeah, I saw it even in, he done it in training to us. <laughs> I think I told you before we yeah. used to do a, we used to do a run, and it used to be like a box, it's squares. He had four cones, and I think there was like about 20, 20 yards in between each cone and a square. So what you had to do, you had to run three of them, tuck three of them. So you do three sides and then run back the other way. Ryan used to do it against us. So you'd be going, you'd be going, you know, different sides, but you'd be running as pairs against each other. Ryan used to do in the last bit of it, turn around and run backwards. <laughs> that's that's what he used to do, and just smile at you. And you know, you just you, even then you wanted to launch yourself at him. But that's what it is. Great players have got this arrogance. That which is which is a great arrogance to have. There's 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 an awful arrogance which we all hate. We all know that kind of arrogance. That's like being smug and all the worst things in the world. But good players like Zidane, all the great players, I should say, the Gazers, um, the Roy Keynes, all these great players, the they, they've got this arrogance that they believe in their ability, and that's what and that's what they've got. And Ryan had that. Zidane's the um, who else had it? The um, I'm trying to think of his name. I've forgotten that. The other Portuguese player, the winger. Figo. Figo, yeah. he had he had that as well. You just look at him, and you just you just know. And Ryan definitely had that in abundance. Yeah, and it's interesting for me that it's always interesting talking to you anyway. But um, the the first two players that you mentioned are Brian Robson and Roy Keane, and that for me is a proper professional's point of view, isn't it? And I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about Keane and Robson. I, I just mean that if you're a player. It's probably stand, it stands to reason for me that the the two names that instantly come to mind would be those two players because they are the players who basically dictate how the game's going to go, aren't they? Yeah, but they're the ones that you walk up when 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 they're in front of you and you you're looking or you're looking around the dressing room. They're the ones that you look at. <clears throat> Obviously, the other players come in as well, but they're they're the ones that you straight away you look and you got them. And you think to yourself, yeah, we're going to win this game. Mm. You just believe that you're going to win this game because of the way they are, because they demand nothing, nothing else other than that. And yeah, okay, you lost some, but you knew that there was going to have to be a fight if we'd lost. So um, yeah, they, they stand, they stand out for me. I could go, I could go through it. The problem is I'd be so biased because I'd be, <clears throat> I'd be on about all the lads I played with. Yeah, of because it's a great yeah. team, and we were having this conversation yesterday um, on on Twitter. Um, Kevin Palmer of the Sunday Sunday World, I'm gonna say. Um, I think it's the 
Irish mirror or something, a paper in Ireland is Irish. He, he talked to Andy Cole about um, about United's treble team against the current Liverpool team, and I had a little bit, a little bit unfair really. I had a pop at Kevin for it. I was like, why do we see these every week? There's no point seeing it in September. I'm sure Andy Cole's got much more interesting things to say um, than talking about this comparison, but obviously then. Um, it broke down into all this sort of like talk about United's great teams on my timeline, and and obviously my favourite is the team that you played in, and and obviously the '99 side is there for its achievement and and what they won, and everyone's talking about 2009 and what a great yeah. underrated side that was as well, and it's just great to, I mean yeah, there is bias in there um, certainly from me as a fan because I look at the the fact that you guys were restricted by what you could do in Europe. Um, but how, how can you not have bias when when you've played with that many great players? I mean, you you mentioned some there, but I mean, you've, been, you've not even talked about the defenders that you played with. Peter Schmeichel who was arguably the greatest goalkeeper of all time. Andre, who played in front of you. Paul Insu, I know that he went on to Liverpool, so that's sort of dampened his connection with the United fans. But still, at that time, it was. I think when Roy, um, in between Robson and Roy. Paul was the best midfielder in Europe. He was the gatekeeper in that position, wasn't he? Um, it's just incredible yeah. that team just had so yeah, much. Yeah, it was. Roy, Roy and um, Roy Nincy as a midfield pair were the best for a couple of seasons, without a shadow of a doubt. They did everything. They did absolutely everything. There was no, oh, you're a defensive midfield player, you're an attacker. Both of them did did both jobs and better than the majority of them can do today. Even, not, even majority, all of them. If you yeah. put those two in the midfield, they'd be the best midfield. Oh, without a doubt, because everyone is now has been given a, a specific position. Yeah, those two, those midfield players, and they just went up and back, up and back, scoring, um, defending the box, <clears throat> getting out wide, passing people through, defending. Um, following runners they they done it all because they wanted to do it if you had told Roy you're a holding midfield player and you've just you can't that's it Roy would have gone absolutely mad because he knew that he was better than just doing that yeah. and that tells you about him so in theory the game has got simple for people because all of a sudden now we're looking at players who just sit in an area and they're always a defensive midfield player and yet they're telling me that players are fitter than what they were in my time what a load of rubbish the players don't they don't cover the yards if they do they're, they're running around chickens with no heads trying to push their stats up so um, nah I mean midfield players of that era you think about England during those um, 80s and 90s you think about Bobby Robson as an England manager trying to pick English central midfield players. You think of the midfield players in, for the, over those 20 years from 1980 to 2000, how many English midfield players, good midfield players there was. You think how many of them went to tournaments. But more importantly, think about the ones who never went mm. because they were being left behind, because there was so much talent, talented midfield players we had in that era of time. And we look at it now... And we're bare bones. Mm. We are bare bones. When we look at talent, we're bare bones. And if we're not bare bones, we're looking and everyone is singing off the same hymn sheet. There's no improvisation. Yeah. It's, it's a funny thing, Paul, that you, we started this podcast and you were complaining about me making you feel old. Let's do something where I can feel a little bit old. There's people listening to this podcast will be 25, 26. They never saw Paul in some ranking play individually or as a partnership. And the best way that I could describe them individually at that time, from 93 to 95, um, if you imagine Kante, Lampard and Essien in one midfielder, that was both of them. <laughs> they both had everything in their game, didn't they? That, and that's not an exaggeration, is it? You looked at Paul Ince and he could be a mix of Lampard, Essien and Kante. And that's the same for Keane at that time as well. Yeah, oh yeah, I'll, I would go with that. that, that that's that's very good. They had, a, they had so much they could do everything. They wasn't one dimensional and had this one strength because they wanted more than that. Because those two used to battle against each other to be the best midfield player in that team, mm. and then to transfer it to being the best player in the league and being then going to one of the best in the world. That's what they both both of them set their stall out to be the best player, and that was their bit. They took that with them from maybe from when they were kids in the schoolyards. It was absolutely incredible, and for what the boss done <clears throat> that 93-94 season to 
for Roy to turn up in South Africa when we were away on a pre-season trip. And we just went, we was kind of wow. But when Roy, you know, it was just absolutely amazing signing that was. And it must have, everyone else outside of Manchester United must have been saying, Christ, they want, they want, to, <laughs> they want to keep that. They want to keep that trophy. They Look what they've just gone and got. And he was an incredible. He made a difference on and off the pitch so quickly, Roy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no surprise that he gets in Paul's um, top three. Um, but I won't ask him to put them in a one, two, three. Um, <laughs> Thank that, you very that'd be much. A little bit unfair. Um, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, remember, TOTD10 is your 10% discount code with uh, classic football shirts. If you enjoyed the show, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week to talk about United against Spurs and their um, reunion with Jose Mourinho however it may go thanks for listening